0: Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. This is your weekly podcast, delivering you the insight, ideas, and inspiration to successfully change and transform in our ever evolving world of retail. Enjoy listening. Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of the Retail Transformation Show. The podcast is celebrating its third birthday. Yes, that's right. Exactly three years ago, episode one of the Retail Transformation Show dropped. And it's been a pleasure to share many, many different episodes with you since then. I am, of course, Oliver Banks, your host and delighted to be your guide to support you and help you on the way to successful retail transformation. Thank you so much for listening, both to today's episode, as well as all of the previous 157 episodes, and a massive thank you and shout out as well to all of our fantastic guests that have joined us here on the Retail Transformation Show to share their expertise, to share their thoughts and their viewpoint, and guide us towards successful retail transformation. It's a real pleasure to put out episodes for you every single week, and the podcast has actually recently been ranked as the number one UK retail podcast, which is a real honour, especially given such strong competition out there. And so I kind of feel it is my duty to continue to deliver a ton of those famed golden nuggets for you. And today, to help celebrate the podcast's third birthday, we're going to be looking back at the past year And I'm pulling out some of my favourite moments and the best bits. We're going to be taking a whistle-stop tour through many, many different episodes over the course of this episode, number 158, 158, and the next episode as well. So do make sure that you hit subscribe in your favourite podcast app if you've not already done so. Now, of course, the last 12 months have continued to be volatile, uncertain. Complex and ambiguous, VUCA as the acronym goes. And one of the really key words that has definitely been trending, both to deal with the volatility as well as change and transformation is, of course, the word Agile. So to kick off our golden nugget tour, I thought we would start off with episode 116, an episode called Understanding Agile. With Lawrence Bonnemar. Here's the clip.
1: Well, Ajahn, from my perspective, to put it bluntly, is just common sense with an uncommon level of discipline. Mm, Tell me more. Yeah, the reason I say that in that way is that it's the uncommon level of discipline that people tend to have um, most difficulty with. And it's the common sense part that annoys most people who've been around for a few years and think, Uh, wasn't this the thing that we did 30 years ago and then all of a sudden consultants came in and told us to do it in a different way because that was better. (laughs) So and why is nobody saying that? And actually that's exactly what I'm saying. This is how you used to work about 30, 40 years ago because it made sense to work closely together because there weren't a lot of people doing software because that's where agile started Mm -hmm. and the same thing held true for there weren't a lot of when when this really got started even earlier right so agile at its core is about a hundred years old Mm. when people started to think of better ways to manage factories and around i think the 1940s 50s lean Grew as a good way to structure manufacturing and by eliminating waste and really thinking through the process and, and optimizing the whole all the time mm. and striving for stuff like single piece flow and making sure that everything that was like a workflow and that that was what everything was optimized against. And essentially taking that concept and applying it to business development or product development or any type of service delivery, knowledge work, so to speak. That's what agile is applying those concepts to a different field. So the lean concepts, which were optimized for mass production, if you translate those to an environment where it's not about mass production, but it's about, well, essentially individual production, because even though projects tend to differ, they are sufficiently different mm. to merit also some some quite big changes. And that means that you can't use the same process all the time and expect the same result you need to be able to embrace change and and like plan and replan really quickly and creating a system that optimizes for that so for inherent variability instead of reducing the variability as much as possible that's the main difference between lean as we know it in industry and lean as we know it in services and product development the flavor of lean that we have now started to call agile in the past i think 20 years yeah that's also interesting by the way it's already 20 years old So it's it's not nothing new, really.
0: I loved recording that episode with Lawrence, as well as all the insight he dived into to help us understand Agile. But hot on the heels of that episode was episode 118 with Julian Mills of Corso, where we were exploring the Agile Stores Manifesto. Take a listen. If you've got a large
2: store network, you also have an amazing ability to learn what works so if you say you 've got a thousand stores you 've got a thousand different trials running at nine o'clock every Monday morning on how to best sell a particular item mm. and really this this value is about saying with the advent of modern collaboration technology or modern social media technology, etc, you have an amazing ability to kind of crowdsource insight from stores very quickly and use that to kind of refine your model mm. and I think the risk is for a lot of these kind of retailers is that you look at the data centrally and the data tells you. How something went, you know, what what were the kind of numerical values, but they don't tell you what people were doing on the ground or why the results are the way they are. Mm. And I think it's that kind of missing kind of contextual in information that this is about. It's about sharing ideas between stores rather than just relying on the centre to tell you, which itself has very limited information.
0: And that clip there from episode one hundred and eighteen was just hinting at one of the four values of the Agile Storage Manifesto that we discussed. And actually the whole agile movement has really prompted the question about operating models and whether an operating model still exists in the volatile and agile world that we live in today. So in episode 117, I asked the question around whether operating models are dead. Here's a little clip from that episode. To that big question that we highlighted earlier, what's the best retail operating model? Well, of course, there is no best retail operating model. It's different for every brand and every company, but it does help you to understand where you are adding value for your customers. It helps you to clarify the investment and the costs involved in your operation And it definitely gives you a brilliant platform to continuously improve and evolve and transform the wider business. But we do also need to rely on the people on the ground doing the job, running the business day to day. Your operating model therefore needs to encourage, trust and support those people. It should enable, not disable. And by that, I mean add elements of flexibility. Add a healthy dose of encouragement, use coaching wisely, and foster positive attitudes rather than telling off and finger wagging. (laughs) Your operating model should empower, not dictate. You shouldn't have this strong compliance focus. Sure, some areas may need it, particularly around health and safety, where you need to create documents and records and due diligence, etc. But not everything needs that, so you must consider how you can limit and reduce that admin, bureaucracy, box-ticking work. Not needed quite so much, thanks. And of course, an operating model is brilliant for sharing best practice and learning together so that you can move and react quickly. Those are key principles when it comes to being agile and flexible. And together, I guarantee you the business will be stronger rather than as a selection of disparate locations, each doing their own things, each stumbling through the dark with no overarching idea and with no operating model. So, spoiler alert, operating models are definitely not dead. They're actually, I think, arguably more powerful now than ever before, but only if they're used in the right way and they give the clarity and the direction, and the flexibility that is needed in the modern day world. And again, throughout the pandemic, supply chains have also been in focus. So it was a real pleasure to welcome Gary Newbury to the show for episode 108, as we explored agile supply chains. Here's Gary's take about what it means to be agile.
3: Just step back and think about the word agile. It often means to to move quickly and easily, much as an athlete or a dancer Mm. might do. And if we change the word move to think, think quickly and easily, we start to get some idea of what we need to have as an organization, not necessarily just in the supply chain, how we need to think about problems, about problem-solving. To meet our consumers' requirements, which are constantly changing and emerging and changing lots of different directions, we need to adopt an agile mindset, which means being open, being flexible, being adaptive, and learning and improving. I think these things are some of the qualities that if we looked at the supply chain, is it adaptive? Is it learning? Is it improving? What's going on there?
0: So Agile has absolutely been the methodology of choice, shall we say, arguably taking that crown from Lean and Lean Six Sigma. And Lean Six Sigma is a topic that I'm really passionate about ever since doing my black belt and before then, actually, to be honest. And I still 100% believe there is a huge amount of value in Lean Thinking and the Lean Six Sigma methodology and the mindset. So it was a real pleasure to dive into it with Simon Heddo from Rethink Productivity in episode 137. And in that episode, Simon and I reviewed through seven key principles of Lean Six Sigma. Here's us early on in that conversation. Enjoy. So we've got seven lean principles to guide you through today. Let's just give you a quick heads up as to the, the seven. So they are always focus on the customer, understand how work really happens, make your process flow smoothly, reduce waste and concentrate on value, stop defects through removing variation, get buy-in from the team through collaboration, and finally, make your efforts systematic and scientific. Where should we start, Simon?
2: Well, let's start with a customer. That should be the the start point for most things in my view, and (laughs) ironically (laughs) is number one as well. So maybe maybe there's a a subtle message. That fits, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it it seems obvious and it's obvious to us from our kind of retail upbringings, that's that's where you'd start. Maybe we don't necessarily see that play out. I don't know if, if you see the same that Sometimes your customer might be internal. Sometimes it might be the the customer that walks through the door.
0: It was fantastic to catch up with Simon Heddo from Rethink Productivity and the Rethink Productivity podcast. Do check it out if you have not already done so. And Simon and I recorded a number of episodes, all with the overarching theme of simplification. So do go back and take a little listen to episode one hundred and thirty-seven through to one hundred and forty-one, but just right now I wanted to rewind back to episode one hundred and eight with Gary Newbury once again because he raised a very
3: important point. Take a listen. So I think that one of the liberators or enablers of of Things like agile, resiliency, lean, whatever, is actually thinking very carefully, deeply about what measures do we need to establish. And that comes from the vision and your marketing objectives. How do they convert themselves into supply chain objectives? All seeing it the same way and we're all aiming towards the same thing. And how do we reward people for the right type of behaviors? You you made that point. Are you good enough? And that may have been heard in different ways than you intended, but it really, mm. it really was a fundamental question. What are you measuring? How do you know you're good enough? How do you how are you you know making a grade? Are you making a grade? Because unless you have the right performance metrics, really the right ones, you you, you can you know continue that path of dysfunctional suboptimization. Data
0: has been another huge trend. But it is also one of those topics that's easy to overcomplicate as different stats and data pieces are thrown around. A, it's quite easy to be bamboozled. And B, it's easy to be misled. Not necessarily intentionally, but to quote George Canning, former foreign secretary and British prime minister, who said, I can prove anything by statistics except the truth. Well, I wonder what Mr. Canning would have to say about our data-led world today. But joking aside, data can absolutely help. And in episode 120, it was a real pleasure to welcome Ian Shepherd back onto the Retail Transformation Show as we dived into understand data and data science. And Ian's so knowledgeable about real applied data, not going into the maths of it all for the sake of it, but really, how do you apply it and put it into action in real life? And that's what he explores in his fantastic second book, The Average Is Always Wrong. So here is Ian Shepherd, helping us understand a little bit more about data.
2: That sense that there is, on the one hand, something really, really important here, that there is a genuine piece of retail transformation to come from understanding the data in our businesses and and, and using it better but on the other hand there is also you know there's so much terminology and so much hype and so many kind of thought pieces being written about it that sound bamboozling and complicated and you know for the average kind of retail (laughs) leader just seem a bit alien Um, it's exactly that tension between the opportunity and the and, and the complication which led me to to write the average is always wrong. And a
0: little further on in that same episode, episode 120, Ian continues on.
2: I've seen too many businesses who are maybe a bit less comfortable with all this data science stuff, look at very, what I would characterize as very cursory summary statistics, and then make really big decisions about you know about their business based on those summary statistics. And so mm. the example I always use in the In the book is, you know, somebody in a presentation says our average customer visits us 2.3 times a month. And and that's a very accessible number. You know, I, I now, as a business leader, I'm thinking, okay, so that's a bit less than once a week. I sort of understand the dynamic of that. I wonder if we could get it to be 2.4 or 2.5 times a month instead because that would be revenue growth. So, so already I'm into a conversation that is presupposes this kind of slightly less than once a week customer and, and, and is thinking about that, that person and their journey through my business. Mm. And yet actually 2.3 times a month on average might mean that almost all your customers do visit you between two and three times a month. That's perfectly possible. But it might also mean that you've got a very small number of customers who come every day and a much larger number of customers who come only once a month uh, that could still mm. that could generate the same 2.3 average figure. And yet the strategy conversation that, that stems from that is completely different because now I recognize I've got two different customer segments and I want to understand a bit more about that and a bit more about what's going on. And so, you know, it, it is almost always the case. I think that the really interesting value in data is in the detail. Definitely. It's in what I, what I call the wiggly lines. It's the, the richness of what's going on underneath, you know, those kind of simple looking summary statistics. And and the reason for making that point is that actually the most powerful data science technique that any business can deploy is just to look at the detailed numbers with their eyes. You know, before you get anywhere near data science and machine learning and building models and neural networks and all that all that stuff. When somebody says, our customers visit us 2.3 times a month, just ask to look at the scatter charts of the of the actual raw data. Mm. Um, because if there are multiple customer segments behaving differently, you'll see it. Your, your eye is a very, very good segmentation tool. It will see differences. It will see patterns. A
0: fantastic episode, that one. Episode 120. Do take a listen if you have not already done so. We've still got plenty of golden nuggets to go today and more next week as well, of course. I hope I'm encouraging you to look back through the archives. If you've not checked out some of these episodes, do add them to your playlist. Go and take a listen. And you can always scroll back further through the archives as well. Maybe even check out the previous best bits and all of the golden nuggets from the first or the second years as well. So let's carry on. And we're going to stick with the data theme. In episode 123, I spoke with Nicola Ascombe about data governance a really important topic to make sure that the numbers you're looking at are real take a listen but what does data governance look like what are the, sort of the core aspects of of data governance
4: yeah so I mean I You can find all sorts of things if you google but i try to take a very simple approach to data governance be very practical about it because this has got to work and as i said this isn't about locking everything down so i think that a data governance framework has three things we have a policy To say that we are going to manage our data properly, because I can tell you from experience, if you do it just as a best practice and I think we should do this thing, you'll you'll get so far and then somebody will say, Oh, Nicola, that was flavor of the month, but we've got this, you know, in case you didn't notice, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and we don't want to play around with this data governance thing. So if you're really serious about managing your data as an asset, you need a policy Mm. that says that our organization has decided and mandating that we're managing our data properly. So that's the boring foundational bit. Even I think some bits of data governance are boring and the policies I know one of them, but it's very, very necessary. <laughs> but then what we need to do is to have some processes, because if we don't have processes, I can talk to you and inspire you to worry about the quality of your data. But if we don't have a process, you could go and fix some data, but you could fix it in a way that causes a problem to somebody else downstream who uses that data. So we need to have some consistent processes. So we're all doing things in the same way, and the mm. same manner. But more importantly than that, we need to have some roles and responsibilities. I mean, I've been doing data governance for 18 years now, and I have never yet been told by somebody that we shouldn't do data governance. Okay. Because when you explain it, everybody goes, well, that makes sense. Clearly we should do it. But they tell me why they can't do it right now, because they're busy, there's other things going on, there's other priorities. Or they, they think it's absolutely the most brilliant idea. We absolutely should have this, but they don't think they should do it. Mm. It should be somebody else.
0: Let me just riff off that, Nicola. How yeah. many companies do you get that say, actually, you know what? We're doing a perfect job with our data.
4: Um, in my experience, nobody's ever told me that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'd like to take a bit of a pivot in the episode at this stage. And rewinding back to episode 109, where I spoke with pop-up and ephemeral retailing expert, Khalia Bustani. Here's a clip from that episode.
5: The brand has to find ways to intrigue. You know, Oliver, it has to wow, it has to incite and it has to make customers take action. And that being said, Communicating the pop-up store should be done in three phases, the before, the during, and the after. Okay. We cannot just communicate when the pop-up store is there. We have to build the momentum, as as you mentioned earlier, and we have to make people want to come in and discover what happens in that pop-up store. Mm. And having said that, when we're talking about conception the, the part of store has to be thought of and managed holistically because everything related to it has to speak the same language or send in the same message and it has to be very congruent with everything that surrounds it. You know, it has to be going with the flow of the location. It has to be naturally appearing in the location. And to to finalize the points on making a pop-up store successful, I would say, Oliver, that we have to digitalize the store. Everything happening in the store could be shared and should be shared with the digital world. I mean, there should be this seamless exchange between online and offline, and this through digital, maybe mirrors or pods or QR codes that allow customers to just share what they are doing in the pop-up store and put it online. And this will build further the viral environment, the online environment, and get people sharing and talking further about the pop-up store.
0: Retail done right is full of excitement. But retail done wrong, as I'm sure you know, can be a little dull, boring, and frankly, hugely frustrating when you know there is a better way. But when I caught up With the retail prophet, Doug Stevens, in episode 144, we spoke about resurrecting retail and exploring Doug's book of the same name. And in this clip, we're diving into a really important aspect that, as Doug says, is really at the crux of the problem.
6: What's interesting to me is that the retail industry, and this is not just characteristic of the retail industry, certainly I think it's the same in, in any industry, is that most companies are, are looking for a silver bullet. Mm. You know, most companies are looking for that one platform, that one piece of technology you know, that, that is going to make all the clouds disappear and, and you know, <laughs> pave the way for success into the future. And unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. Right, But the reality of the situation is that if we were to jump in the car right now, whether we were in London, Toronto, New York, doesn't matter, and drive down the street and look at the stores that we're passing as we're driving along, a minute fraction of the brands that we see around us would really hold any significant place in our hearts, Mm. in our minds. Most of them could go away tomorrow and we'd never even feel the difference. That, to me, is the real crux of the problem. Mm. That is the ultimate vulnerability. You know, if, if the consumer ultimately doesn't really care about your brand, there is no social network. There is no technology that will save you. And so it was actually through one of the interviews that I was conducting for the book. I was speaking with Ben Kaufman from camp. And he said, you know, at the end of the day, I think every brand really needs to be an answer to a consumer question. And so just like you, Oliver, it kind of got me thinking. And I thought, well, that, that's true. So let me think about that in terms of brands and, and the way that brands, different brands answer questions. And so what I came down to were these sort of 10 evergreen consumer questions, questions that I thought, you know, this is a, it, it, it's a question that's legitimate. It's valid. And and I suspect it's going to be a question that consumers will ask far into the future. Mm. Um, So questions like, who inspires me in the market? Which brands align with my values? Which brands do I get really great entertainment value from when I shop with them? Who has the best product in the market? Or where can I go for the best level of expertise? I mean, these are evergreen mm. questions, right? So I thought, you know, if if brands could begin to really orient themselves around those questions and do a better job of really being the definitive answer to that question in their category, yes. that comp- comprises a strategy now all of a sudden, right? And shortly after catching up with Doug Stevens
0: there, it was fantastic to speak to Kate Trotter from Insider Trends in episode 146 as we discussed the future of department stores. Now, department stores is always one of those topics that gets the emotions running, right? Lots of people have lots of opinions, but Kate works with many different department store brands and she sees a future that really embraces transformation. And actually, it's a path. That has already started. So there is precedence for how this can be a success.
7: Take a listen. One part of this is thinking that it's not about the store anymore, that these brands need to think of themselves as omni-channel businesses. And when we think about third-party retail, possibly the future of third-party retail is not selling to customers. It's actually selling to brands. Mm. So I was thinking, I mean, we all know about Beta yeah. or Beta, as you say it in the US. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been saying it wrong for years and I'm miss, missing out the eight in the name only because I'm thoroughly British. So I say it Beta anyway. That's okay. <laughs> so obviously Beta did a few interesting things, but one of the most interesting things was that they saw the space as a space for marketing. They stopped caring about where people were buying the product and they realized that their function was actually to introduce new and interesting products to their audience, which is already following what they're doing. Mm. And that's the other part of this piece, actually, is that Beta is such a strong brand, they do have their own following. So Google... Obviously, I th- do they have what, $3 billion in the bank? They probably have more, but they have billions of dollars in the bank. Right? Take a quick stock check. yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They are not poor. They could, I mean, they could probably buy Selfridges, couldn't they? Imagine that if Google bought Selfridges. Anyway, they could open a store wherever they wanted, but they decided to rent out part of Beta's space because Beta have the following of. Cool trendsetters, cool influencers, the people they want to seed their products with. And really, department stores or whatever we're going to call them from now on could take a lot from this. In that, I think they should be doing more to actually connect with a series of customers to actually build this following of customers. And they can then kind of sell that back to brands. Mm. So, actually, I guess the value chain, the value relationship is, is flipping. Yeah. So they're selling access and eyeballs to the brands rather than the other way around. And of course,
0: in the Retail Transformation Show, we explore all types of transformation, fundamental, big transformation, and incremental transformation that helps to optimize and continually improve a business. And the key is getting the right balance between the fundamental and the incremental side, as well as leading the transformation. So in episode 131, I dived into four traits of successful transformation leaders. Take a listen to a clip from that episode. Trust is a really important factor that again has many different facets to it. And the first consideration I'd like you to make is around the fact that trust is a scale. It is not a digital answer. Either you are trusted or you are not. It's infinitely variable. It is not black and white. It is not yes or no. So trust is something you continue to need to work on. This includes being a role model and building integrity, keeping to your word, even collaborating with others and hearing what other people's thoughts are. But consider this. What if trust can be a good thing or a bad thing? It seems slightly counterintuitive, but whenever trust comes up, I'm instantly reminded of a fantastic talk that Rachel Botsman did at a Salesforce event a couple of years ago, back in the olden times when uh, real live events still happened. (laughs) So Rachel Botsman, who you should definitely follow on LinkedIn as well, by the way, if you don't already, gave me a different viewpoint on trust when she said, the question is not, are you trusted? The question really should be about What are you trusted for? You know, I could ask you the question, do you trust Amazon? Maybe you say yes, maybe you say no, maybe you say, oh, I'm not sure, maybe it depends. But if I say, do you trust Amazon to deliver a parcel, probably much bigger percentage nodding their head saying yes, right? So, depending on what you're focusing on, trust, of course, can be a good thing or a bad thing, which I think is a really fascinating perspective. And I hope that after listening to this episode, that you start to question yourself, am I trusted to do what? And do I trust someone else to do what? That might put a different viewpoint on it, certainly one that I have appreciated over the past few years. There's always so much going on in the world of retail, and increasingly, the challenges we face are complex and full of contradiction. But in episode 145 i dived into that contradiction headfirst and fortunately there can be light at the end of the tunnel triz which is an acronym in russian which translates to the theory of inventive problem solving now the core idea here of triz is that every problem has already been solved every problem has already been solved and what Alschriller did as he looked through all of these patents is that he said, right, what are the common problems and what are the common solutions with this concept that every problem has already been solved? And so one of the core mindsets in TRIZ is that to solve your specific particular problem, firstly you need to generalize the problem. And from there, you can find other times. Where that general problem has occurred. And what you do is you take the solutions from those general problems, it's a general solution, and then you can take that and adapt that back down to your own specific solution for your specific problem and situation. So you generalise the problem, you solve the problem, and then you specify the solution. That's what TRIZ mostly is all about. So, firstly, to generalise the problem, What is the conflict or contradiction that is really going on? What is at the heart of it? You know, is it about wanting more but wanting less? Is it about going faster and slower? Is it about being set and predictable but also being flexible? Whew, we are getting through these golden nuggets, but we're only halfway. And I've got one more clip for you today in episode 150. I took a look at the ever-evolving world of retail, and it was also really fun to introduce the new theme music in that episode as well. It's the little things in life, right? (laughs) Take a listen to this from episode 150. You know, with our transformation hats on, I think we will be reflecting on, thinking about and talking about three different ages. Pre COVID, during COVID, and post COVID. And as we continue to move into and through the post COVID era, we have to ask ourselves what's going to happen. Do we, as individuals, as companies, and as a society, do we revert to pre COVID? Do we stay where we are in the during COVID era? Or are we going to continue to transform? taking lessons and fixing what's wrong, and being always hungry to level up to a true post-COVID era. Many changes have been occurring in the retail market, and lots more, as I say, beside the ones we've discussed today. So ultimately, I would suggest to you that the Retail Transformation Show is a great place, no, the great place, to keep track of the changing and ever-evolving world of retail. To help you keep pace with the changes and help you continue to deliver successful transformation, you should definitely subscribe to the Retail Transformation Briefing, my weekly email newsletter that guides you through the changing world of retail and shares key insight and intel to help keep you at the top of your game. You can sign up for free at obandcouk slash briefing. And if you've not already signed up for that Retail Transformation Briefing, then consider this an active reminder. Head over to obandco.uk slash briefing and sign up for free. And we're going to be concluding looking back at the past year of the Retail Transformation Show and pulling out some of the golden nuggets and some of the best bits that I've really enjoyed. There are so many episodes to choose from, I have to be honest. And in many ways, I can't really do justice to about 24 hours worth of content in just a short space of time. But I hope you have enjoyed this initial tour of these golden nuggets, as I say. But I would love to hear what have been your favourite bits as well. Do reach out oliver.banks at obandco.uk is my email address. And you can email me or reach out on LinkedIn as well. Now, if you want to refresh your mind as to any of these episodes, then the one place you must head over is the show notes today, which you can find at obandco.uk 158. That's obandco.uk 158. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll join you for part two next time. Bye for now.